You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are really glad that you're here. So a while back, this is probably uh, three, four years ago, I was speaking at a conference in Orlando. Uh, it was actually, I was hosting a conference for pastors from all over the country, and it was three full days, and there was this, the schedule was a little crazy for me, and so I made this decision that I just ate at the, I ate lunch and dinner at the same restaurant in the hotel every day, and it was, uh, I also ate there because the kids ate free. And so I told my kids it was my favorite restaurant. And I'm like, that's why we're going to eat there every day. And so anyway, because then I got, I only had to pay for two meals. But anyway, um, so on the last day there, I get to the restaurant. I order a Coke Zero like I had every day before. Now, I'll tell you this. I, I, I love Coke Zero. I know you don't have to email me about the new studies. Studies show that it's Coke Zero will kill you in the night. I know. It's terrible. Everything else is going to kill you too, but that's a different conversation. Um, but I... I, I just, I love Coke Zero because I think it's a taste of heaven. It's like it tastes like Coke, but no, none of those calories that you don't want. Because you know what? You're going to get to heaven one day and you're going to bite into a Twinkie Zero. You're going to have French fries Zero. You're going to wash it down with milkshake Zero. And you're going to have Cinnamon Toast Crunch Zero for breakfast. And so anyway, so, but I digress. Anyway, so um, all week we had the same server. Uh, and so super nice guy. And so I would or, I'd order a Coke Zero for lunch and, and for dinner. But the last day that we're there, we had a different server. And so it was for lunch, it was just me and a buddy of mine. And um, I said, hey, I'm gonna have, I'll have a Coke Zero. Uh, he'll, it, we'll both have Coke Zeros. And the guy says, I'm sorry, we don't, we don't serve Coke Zero. And I, I'm like, sir, you must be new. Uh, but I've been, ordering, I've been ordering Coke Zeros all week. And he's like, sir, I've been here for nine years and we don't serve Coke Zero in this entire hotel. And I said, sir, I don't think you understand. What have I been drinking all week? And, uh, and he's like, I don't know what to tell you, sir, but I do know this, is that we don't serve Coke Zero. And here's the thing, the day before, I was having dinner with my family and uh, a friend of ours, and we were saying, this is the best Coke Zero that we've ever had. This tastes exactly like Coke. And it's so good, you know, and let's have seven more. Uh, and so anyway, and, and here's, I thought I was enjoying the taste of Coke with all the un, without all the unnecessary calories, and yet I was drinking in 93 octane, right? And I had no idea. Now, I, you, we've all had this moment, right? I mean, you probably didn't have it like this, but we've all had this moment where we have been trying to do the right thing, and you get in trouble for it. Right? Anybody have that kind of, yeah, we could start a small group, just, uh, just like the got in trouble for doing the right thing group. And, and the reality is, right, the reality is, is that we, the fallen world that we live in, sometimes doing the right thing has consequences. That's just the truth. The question that we really have to answer is, will we still do the right thing? And that is, or will we still honor God in the face of trials and difficulties? And that's the point of the story that's before us. We find ourselves in uh, message number 12 in this series that we're doing. It's called The Movement Through the Book of Acts. So if you're not aware, the Book of Acts is 
the story of the church's growth and development after an expansion, after the resurrection of Jesus. And so there's been some persecution, but nothing too bad. There's been some problems, but nothing too severe. But now that's all about to change. The persecution is going to get so intense, it's actually going to scatter the church who have been kind of huddled up in the city of Jerusalem. It all begins back in chapter 6 where there was this young man named Stephen who had been preaching about Jesus and then there were some accusations that were made uh, against him from a synagogue, the people that were part of this particular synagogue. They bring him before this group called the Sanhedrin. It's called the Council, if you're reading through the New Testament, but it's like the Jewish Supreme Court. And he has to give a defense for what he's been teaching. And they accuse him. The accusations are threefold. They accuse him of blaspheming God. They accuse him of blaspheming Moses and the law. And then they accuse him of blaspheming this holy place, the temple. And last week, we looked at the first half of Stephen's defense and how he masterfully recounted Jewish history, showing us that God has worked outside of the temple, outside of Israel. And he also showed how God's people have regularly missed the work of God because he was working in a way that they didn't expect. And so what we're going to spend our time together is we're going to look at the end of the sermon and a little bit of the, the beginning of the aftermath of the sermon, which really changes the complexion of the church forever. And this is so important because it totally intersects with your life and mine. Because there are moments in your life, in your workplace, in your school, in your family, where you have to make a choice. Are you going to do the right thing, even if there are consequences? Are you going to trust God, even if you're going to get in trouble for it? And this is where we begin. If you remember last, uh, where we left last week, he was talking about Moses. And how Moses, people didn't recognize Moses as the deliverer the first time, but it was when he came back after the burning bush experience that people acknowledged and realized that he was the deliverer, the one who was called to deliver the Jewish people. But we're going to start in verse 37, a kind of mid-conversation, where he says, This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles given to us, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. uh, For as for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifices to the idol and rejoiced in the work of their own hands. And then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god uh, Remphan, Images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away to or beyond Babylon. If you pause there and give me your attention, there's three things that we're going to look at. The first is this, when we look at Stephen's sermon, is that we have to understand this, that understand that believing and faith are not the same thing. You and I can believe something intellectually, but that doesn't mean that we have faith in it. And this is an important point that we're going to make that Stephen is making. And if you remember in our message last week, One of the things that we talked about is that sometimes God's people were unaware of the work that God was doing. 
And here, what Stephen is doing is that he's highlighting how the people of Israel broke the law. Remember, they, they were saying, Stephen, you're, you don't care about the law. Stephen is saying that the people of God broke the law from the moment that they got it. If you remember, uh, in, the books, uh, in the book of Exodus, chapters 19 and 20, God calls the people to Mount Sinai, and he begins to speak to them from uh, the mountain. He gives them the Ten Commandments, and they're hearing the voice of God. And the voice of God freaks them out so much that they ask if it would be okay if just Moses spoke to them instead of God speaking to them from the mountain. And I, I just think that's funny because people, I hear people say this all the time, I just wish God would, would speak to me, just like show up in my bedroom and just talk to me. You know, in the Bible, every time God shows up in somebody's bedroom, uh, they think they're going to die. Um, every time God speaks audibly, they, they very politely say, God, if you could not talk to us anymore and just maybe have somebody else talk to us, that would be awesome. And, uh, and that's exactly what happens here. God's times to be like, hey, Lord, if you could just have Moses talk to us, this is a little too much for us to handle. And um, now, if you're familiar with the, the, the story, or maybe you saw the movie, but if you're familiar with the story, then you know Moses goes up the mountain, up Mount Sinai, for 40 days, and then he comes down with the two tablets of stone. Now, he, co he comes down with a little more than that. He comes down with the two tablets of stone written on the front, written on the back. He comes down with 613 commandments that he's going to uh, explain to the people about what God is requiring, and then he's going to have a set of blueprints on how to build the tabernacle, the place of worship. However, by the time Moses gets down to the bottom of the mountain, the people had built themselves a God to worship. And this is in Exodus chapter 32. It's in your notes. It says, Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Moses approached the camp, and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made, burned it in the fire, he, then he ground it to powder, scattered it in the water, and made the Israelites drink it. Okay, now, first of all, there is so much going on here. Um, I'm okay with Moses breaking the tablets, even though it's like, dude, God wrote this, you know, but it's like, and, and it's, it's something symbolic, right? They, were they had just heard the Ten Commandments spoken. They had now the physical representation of them, and they get down there, and it's like they were already breaking them. So Moses breaks them to just symbolically show that the people were already breaking them. But the part that's always been kind of extreme to me is when, he, when Moses, he melts the golden calf down, then grinds it up. And you got to think, like, this takes a little while. It's like, what are you doing? Oh, I'm melting this guy. Blow torches it, however that stuff worked back then. Gets it down. Then he grinds it. Then he gets it into a powder. Then he collects it. Then he pours it into some water. And then he's like, hey, drink up. And he makes these people drink it. It's like the first powdered energy drink. Only one flavor, golden calf. And, uh, and so... But I want you to notice, there is a slippery slope here, and this is the point that Stephen's going to bring up. Uh, when they decided to make this golden calf, and, and if you remember the story, um, Aaron fashions the golden calf, and he says, behold the children of Israel, the God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. They didn't just come up with their own God out of nowhere. This was a God that the Egyptians worshipped. Uh, this golden calf was called the Apis. In fact, this is the picture of it. 
Um, if you come with us to Israel, you'll see some stuff like this when we go to the Israeli Museum. But uh, this is the Apis bull. The Apis bull was one of the major gods that was worshipped in Israel. Now, they had kind of forgot that God had pronounced judgment on all of the livestock. This was a judgment against Apis. And if you're not aware, if you weren't with us in the Old Testament class that we did um, over the summer, one of the things that we talked about was is that all of the 10 plagues that happened in Egypt were judgments against the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. They weren't just random. They were all judgments against the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. Now, when they had created an image to worship, this, this Apis bull, they didn't just create the image, but they entered into the rites of that idol. And the Apostle Paul gives us some commentary about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says this, Now these things became our example to the extent that we should not lust after the evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as some of them, as it is written, the people, and this is a quote from Exodus 32, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So, and that is, a, that is a quote from Exodus 32. And, and by the way, when it says they ate, they drank, they rose up to play, that was not a friendly game of Uno after dinner that they were having, all right? This was now them compromising their convictions. Why? Because that's what an idol always requires. And, and listen, you don't have to worship a statue to have an idol. An idol is anything that we make the ultimate thing in our lives. Your career can be an idol. Hobbies can be a idol. Anything that takes the place of God in your life, the, the, the thing that becomes ultimate, the thing that you will sacrifice anything for, that can be an idol. And whatever you have your trust in, that's where your faith is. And this is what I said in the beginning, that believing and faith are two different things because, and I understand that sometimes uh, they're used as synonyms and that's fine. But when we're talking about uh, you believe something, that sometimes just means an intellectual assent. That is, I just intellectually believe that something is true. You can believe that God exists. Lots of people, in fact, the majority of people in America believe that God exists, but that doesn't mean that they follow him, walk with him, or trust him. In fact, in the book of James, by the way, this is the verse. This was the checkmate verse for me when my, when my brother uh, was sharing the gospel with me because when he had shared the gospel with me, I said, hey, but listen, I believe, I believe in God. And he, he quoted this verse from James chapter two. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. And he's like, so, well, the good news is is you're like right on par with demons. And I'm like, first of all, dang, bro, it's a little heavy-handed. Uh, <laughs> And so, but right after that is when I gave my life to Jesus, after I read, I read that, that verse, you know, um, and I know some people are like, oh, I read this verse about God's love. No, I read a verse about the demon faith. That's, that's the one that, that kind of tipped me. But see, demons have an intellectual understanding that God exists, but don't trust him. Faith is ultimately about trust. It's putting all of your weight on him. And by the way, not all faith is created equal. Because it's the object of our faith that determines whether our faith makes sense or not. A, a couple of years ago, I was here at Calvary on a Saturday because there was a wedding taking place. And they decided, the couple, that they were going to do the wedding outside. And then kind of in the little octagon was where they were going to have the ceremony. And then on either side on the grass, they were going to have chairs. Really beautiful the way they set it up. And so... Um, after the service, or, or sorry, uh, right before the service was going to start, everybody was inside, but then we were walking outside to, be, uh, to participate in the service. And so I, there's all these really nice lawn chairs, but I don't know, these chairs, they were like these plastic chairs, and, um, and I went to sit down on, and I, I got to be honest with you, I did not have a lot of faith 
because I'm not a small person. And, um, and, and so I just, I don't know if you've ever sat in a chair that you don't fully trust, but you're not really sitting. It's more like an assisted squat where you're kind of, you know, you're sitting, but it's like, you know, your thighs are still absorbing some, some pressure. And so, and I didn't want to sit down because I just, uh, you know, I was a little worried about it. Anyway, this other guy comes over and he's got to be twice my size. And he comes over and he doesn't just sit on the chair. You know, there's, listen, people just live their lives, you know. But this guy, there's people who sit, they just like, they sit like a normal person. Then there's people who like kind of throw themselves back. Like, first of all, who taught you that technique? Anyway, but this guy just kind of throws himself back into the chair. And I was like, I was ready for the show. And, uh, and, at the thing, and I was like, hold, hold up. That chair absorbed it. And uh, I mean, it was barely hanging on, but it was hanging on. And I thought for sure. And I, and I became so relaxed in my chair. Why? Because the thing that I believed now was the object, the thing that I thought could fully absorb the weight. Could. And the object of my faith was worthy of my faith and I could trust it. Listen, this is the point that Stephen is making. And he doesn't just quote the Exodus scene. And this is just part of the genius of Stephen's sermon. He quotes uh, from the book of Exodus, but now he takes us on a trajectory a couple hundred years into the future. And he quotes that passage that we read in verses 42 and 43. Did you offer sacrifices in the wilderness, all that? That's actually a quote from the, this, the Old Testament book of Amos chapter 5. Why? Amos was a prophet. Now, um, once again, if you were with us in our Old Testament class, and if you weren't, I can't help you. But you can go on YouTube and watch all six sessions. But here's what a uh, quick thing that you got to know is that the kingdom of Israel split in 931 BC. There was the northern kingdom, which was 10 tribes. Remember, there was 12 tribes in Israel. The northern kingdom was 10 tribes. The, the, the southern kingdom, which was called Judah, was two tribes, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. The capital was Jerusalem. The capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria. Now, Amos was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel after uh, it got divided because they got deeply involved in idolatry. And the problem was, is that, listen, even with the nation divided, they're still Jewish. And so they still have to appear three times a year in the temple. And so Jeroboam, who is the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, says, what am I going to do? I can't have people going down to Jerusalem three times a year because then they're going to feel very patriotic and have national pride and want to reunify the country, and then I'm going to get assassinated because I'm this, uh, this king that took off with 10 of the tribes. So instead, he devises a plan. And this is in 1 Kings 12. It's in your notes or you see it up on the screen. It says, after seeking advice, the king made, look, two golden calves. And he said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That is a direct quote of what Aaron said in Exodus chapter 32. Um, then you'll see it says, then he set up one in Bethel, that is in the southern part of uh, the northern kingdom, and the other in Dan, which is at the very north. And this thing became a sin, and the people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. They believed in the God of Israel, but their faith was in something else. And by the way, if you want to know how this plays out, let's take this now another 270 years into the future. When Assyria carries away the northern kingdom 
uh, into captivity beyond Babylon, just like Amos said. Uh, You'll see what it says here. It says, all this took place because the Israelites sinned against the Lord their God, who brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshiped other gods. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole, and they bowed down to all the starry hosts, and they worshiped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sought omens and uh, sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, arousing his anger. Listen, whatever your faith is in, it is putting you on a trajectory into eternity. And the Jewish leaders that Stephen was speaking to just didn't understand that their lack of ability to see that God was working in a different way than they thought was the root of the problem. And that's what we're going to see next. Look at what he says in verse 44. And this is where, you know, he really starts to get hot. He says this, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, and he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, brought it with Joshua into the land, possessed by Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what Will my place uh, be my place of rest? Has not my, that my hand has not already made? You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did. You do, you so do. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention. This is the end of the sermon, but here's the thing you have to understand. Not only is that believing in faith not the same thing, we have to understand that tradition and relationship are not the same thing. Stephen is getting to the heart of his message. God does not dwell in temples. God created everything. You cannot limit God to a place. In fact, Solomon, who built the temple, understood that. In 1 Kings chapter 8, he says this, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Remember the charges against Stephen. The charges were he's blaspheming God and and then he opens with the God of glory appearing to our father Abraham. Stephen loved God and showed that. He says that they blaspheme Moses in the law, and he spoke of the law of Moses, and that Moses himself, um, as, as, a, as a believer, as one of God's people, and that Moses, that the, no one, they didn't recognize Moses, but then, now he starts talking about the temple. This is the third charge, saying that God doesn't dwell in buildings made with hands. By the way, you know, it's important to note this. God never commanded the building of the temple. God allowed the building of the temple because David wanted, it was David's idea, David wanted to build the temple. Now, this is, when, when he gets asked this question, this is, the, uh, David says to the prophet, I, I want to build, you know, I'm living in this nice house, let me build something for God. And the prophet Gad says, David, do all that's in your heart. But then he has to go back. 
Because this is what God says. You gotta, he says, you gotta tell David this. He says, I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought Israel up out of Egypt to this day. I have moved from one tent site to another, from one dwelling place to another. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say at any of their leaders whom I commanded to shepherd my people, why have you not built me a house of cedar? You see, the point is this. He's saying the temple is fine, but listen, it was not God's command to build it. He allowed it to be built, but the temple was never the point. The temple was never to house God. It was a meeting place with God. In 2 Chronicles 6, uh, 2 Chronicles 2, 6, Solomon says it this way, but who is able to build him a temple since heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him? Who am I then that I should build a temple except to burn sacrifice before him? Even Solomon understood this is what this is. This is a house for sacrifice for God. Stephen is saying, Solomon would agree with me that it's not about the temple. It's about God. And we meet at the temple. And by the way, Isaiah would agree with me. When he says, uh, and he quotes in verses 49 and 50, um, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Uh, what house will you build for me? This is a quote from Isaiah 66. Now, by the way, this passage, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool, that passage is spoken several times in the Old Testament. So the question you got to ask is, why does David pick Isaiah to quote that as opposed to picking someone closer to the building of the temple? Now, I believe this is uh, really important because he quotes this he quotes all of verse 1 and only the first line. He stops mid-sentence of verse 2. Why? Because I believe that this is what's called a remiz. And if you've been around Calvary for a little bit, you know I've, I've talked about this in the past. A remiz was a system of teaching and learning. Uh, the word remiz in Hebrew means a hint. And this is why Jesus asked so many questions, because a lot of times he was asking questions to lead people to a certain place. But part of the remiz, once again, would be a question. It would be a hint pertaining to a certain Bible passage that would give you the answer to your question. And I, I've used this illustration before, but if you would ask the rabbi a question, the rabbi would quote you the verse before or the verse after it to give you the answer. So if you ask the rabbi, what color is the sky? He might say, well, roses are red, knowing that the next line is the answer to the question. I believe that's what's happening here is that Stephen is giving us the first part of the answer, and them, having had all of the, these prophets memorized, they would know what the problem is. Now, look at what it says. Let me give you the rest of it. Uh, he says, heaven is, this is um, Isaiah 66, 1. He says, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has not all my hand made these things? That's only the first few, few words of verse 2. Let me read you the, the whole verse. Has not my hand made all these things? So that they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. He's, that's the answer that Stephen is giving them. He's giving them a remiss and saying that it's their lack of humility. It's their lack of contrition. It's their lack of reverence for God's word that is causing them to miss the Messiah and miss all that God is doing. He's saying you're so focused on the temple thinking that that's what makes you right with God. And yet you don't realize how far from God you actually are. There's, there's something so powerful here that I, that I want to take a second to talk about that we need to understand. The way that religious systems generally work is that as long as you're okay with God and don't offend God, things are good. The problem with that kind of thinking 
is that over the years, you and I have probably met people who said they were religious or said they had faith or said they were Christians and yet were total jerks. And you've, you've had trouble squaring up. How can this person say that they're a Christian and yet just be so rude and just, uh, just so unpleasant? How, how is that? And so, see, and here's the issue. They were completely okay with being jerks because they said the right prayers, they believed the right things, so it didn't matter how they treated people. Real Christianity is not like that. Christianity teaches that loving God should transform you from the inside out and turn you into a person who cares about other people. This is the problem when tradition overrides a relationship with God. We end up with people who are really good at ritual, but don't care about others at all. And by the way, you know, the whole point of the ritual wasn't bad. The whole point of sacrifice, of people bringing a sacrifice to the temple was not bad. The whole point was to show that sin kills. Sin destroys everything that it touches. And yet God and his love wants to forgive us. And what that should do is make me a little more forgiving. Make us a little more gracious because God has been gracious to us. Uh, to us. And, and, and by the way, the backlash to that, when we, uh, of, of saying, well, then if, if that's the case, then we shouldn't just worry about things like theology or you know, what we believe. We should just try to love people, right? And I hear people say, that I don't care about theology. I just want to walk with Jesus and love people, which is fine. The problem is that sentence that you just said, that is a theological statement. And your theology, that is, and theology is what you believe about God. What you believe about God will impact every part of your life. What you believe about the Bible will impact every part of your life. It, it's, just, it's inevitable if you, if you say you're a believer. About 10 years ago, my kids were really little back then, uh, we were at the Magic Kingdom and Mia and Xander, uh, have always loved the Tomorrowland Speedway, if you're familiar with that. And so this has been, I have pictures of myself at seven years old with my dad driving in the Tomorrowland Speedway. So I, I, this, I, it has like a special place for me. And so then being in the little car with the kids has always you know, been a thing because I have a picture of myself with, with my dad the one time that I went, even though that was a miserable experience because I, they made me at seven years old wear a backpack the whole time that had all the food we were gonna eat throughout the day. And so, because they're like, it's too expensive to eat here. And then, I mean, I don't know if there's anything more Cuban than that, but, um, and then every time, um, uh, the, and I think we still have a picture of this, we would stop and we're on one of the benches on Main Street. We're like, oh, we're gonna eat. They hand me a sandwich and I eat the sandwich. I'm like, oh, I'm thirsty. And I open up the backpack. There's a two liter bottle of Pepsi that I've been carrying. And I was like, anybody else wants it? Anyway, this is, this is uh, anyway, you don't know the half of it, but anyway, so anyway. I don't know why I have fond memories of that, but that's a different problem. Um, so we're getting on the ride, and this is when they still had fast passes when, before the dark times. And um, so anyway, but the, the kids both wanted to drive, so, and I knew they had a thing that you could, they could both drive. So I said, hey, is it okay if they both drive? He says, yeah, uh, then one will drive, and then they'll go around, and then the other person, but you just got to decide who's going to go first. So they both say they go, they're going to go first. And I'm like, guys, work it out. So Mia, age six, is talking to Xander, age three. And so she puts her, uh, Mia puts her hand on Xander's shoulder and said, Xander, you should probably go last because the Bible says the last will be first. And, uh, and Xander, age three, he says, Mia, let me tell you something. The first are first 
and the last are last. I don't know where you're getting your information from. And Mia says, I, I think it's in the Bible. I hear mommy say that all the time. And then Xander turns to me and he's like, Dad, yeah? Is that in the Bible? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, Mia, you're right, but only because Dad says you're right. And uh, so anyway, so I went first so they could both be last. And that's how you solve that problem. So, <laughs> so it's just good parenting, really. And so, but now, this is where Stephen brings it home. Stephen brings it home because he says that they are just as guilty as their forefathers because they've missed the work of God. They missed the Messiah. Remember the beginning, he says, Moses said that there was a prophet who would rise up that would be like him. That was um, one of the earlier mentions in the Bible of the Messiah. Jesus was in the temple and they missed it. Jesus was working miracles and they figured out ways to dismiss it. Jesus rose and they made up stories to ignore it. And then this is when things get a bit ugly uh, in verse 54. It says this, and when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. Literally, the Greek word is there, they were furious. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling, out on, God, calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution rose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. And as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. If you pause there and give me your attention. Here's the last thing I want to tell you. Is that you gotta, we have to understand that hearing and knowing are not the same thing. The leaders hear Stephen's indictment of them and they lose their minds. And they decide that they're going to stone Stephen. Now let me explain how stoning worked in ancient Israel. Typically you were brought to the edge of a cliff and if you come with us to Israel, you're going to see it. Once again, this is, this is the topography of Israel. There's a lot of cliffs, a lot of hills, mountains. And so you were typically brought to the edge of a cliff. Uh, Stephen was at the temple, so they would have taken him outside the temple to what was called the Lion's Gate. In fact, we have a map here. Uh, this is a modern map of Jerusalem. This is the Temple Mount. It, now it says the Dome of the Rock, which is what was there, but the, uh, it's still the exact same thing as the Temple Mount. And um, this is what's called the Lion's Gate, or it's also called Stephen's Gate, because this is where Stephen was taken. If you come with us to Israel, uh, this is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, but right here, there's a pizza place that is so good. And um, so... That's the best pizza in Israel right there. Anyway, but we're going to get to that. We'll get to that. So they take him out of the lion's gate. And remember, this, this, this is such a hard line right here because that's the very edge of this mountain, that, uh, Mount Zion, that uh, Israel is built on. And so then there's a valley, which is called the Valley of Kidron. And then there's the Mount of Olives right next to it. 
So they essentially, what they do is that they take Stephen through the lion's gate. They throw him over into the Kidron Valley. And that's how you would stone someone. You would throw them over. If they died, that was the end of it. If they didn't die after they were thrown off the precipice like this, then you would take a large stone and hurl it on them to kill them. If they still survived, then you would throw more stones until the person had died. Stephen apparently survives the fall. And as they're hurling stones at him, he prays these two prayers. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit and don't charge this sin against them. And if you've been with us on any Good Friday and we talk about the statements of Jesus from the cross, these are two things that Jesus says, Lord, forgive them. They know not what they do. And then he says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. But he's praying for these people as they're trying to kill him. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.